Well, I wanted to begin this morning by sharing a little bit of news with y'all. Um, first of all, no, I'm not pregnant. That's the first thing everyone asks. Um, some of you know this, but uh, in the past week or two, my, both my husband and I were accepted into uh, doctoral programs at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, which is very exciting. Unfortunately, it's in Chicago, um, or just outside Chicago, which means that we will be moving this summer, um, which is, has been very, very bittersweet for me. Um, I've lived in Durham for about 10 years, and I've been at the summit for about six of those years. And um, during my time here, I've made friendships that I know I'll have for the rest of my life, um, but it's just very, it's been very difficult. Uh, I've definitely been grieving um, leaving here. And so I, I hope and pray that, especially for those of you who are new, that you will have the, the same kinds of friendships that I've had here. Um, but I'm also very excited. My husband is going to be studying systematic theology, and I won't even begin to try and explain to you what he's going to be studying because I barely understand it myself. Um, but I will be uh, studying educational studies, and I'll be doing that with a concentration on women's ministry. Uh, there's not a lot of doctoral-level research that has been done on women's ministry, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of churches are, are moving away from it. And so I'm really hoping that I can contribute to uh, the field of women's ministry because in my experience, it's a really powerful asset of the church. And so I'm excited to uh, just spend some time exploring that and um, contributing to the church in this regard. So all that to say, um, I'm excited, but I'm going to miss you all so much. <laughs> so, um, But this morning, we are going to be talking about Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to read through it in a second, but it was awesome. Jan's prayer was so perfect because it was like we were just totally tracking in terms of what I feel, and actually what Michelle said as well, in terms of what this passage is about. And the best way that I could think to summarize this passage is that it's about taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. And that's a phrase that actually comes from 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, but I couldn't really think of a better way to summarize it. it it's um, all about, as I think both Jan and Michelle said, it's about thinking on Christ, focusing on Christ, and taking captive thoughts that set themselves up against the truth of Christ and disciplining your thought life. Um, that sums up what went wrong in the Philippian church with these two individuals we're about to talk about, um, but it also summarizes Paul's solution to the problem. So I'm going to begin by just reading this passage, so feel free to read along or just to close your eyes and listen. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Loving Father, it's been a crazy week full of plans and um, excitement and sadness for me. And so my brain is just a thousand different places right now. I pray that you would help me to put into practice what I'm teaching on today and help me to think only of you. Focus my thoughts and anoint my words so that we would all be edified by your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be talking about the importance of focusing on Christ, thinking on Christ, um, thinking on the things, the attributes of Christ. But what we encounter in chapter 4, first of all, is what happens basically when this doesn't happen, when someone loses focus on Christ, when they have stopped making Christ the first thing. And so we encounter... These, these two women, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, that's how you pronounce it. Euodia means uh, fragrance. Um, Syntyche is nothing special. <laughs> um, but anyway, these two women, they lost their focus on the first thing. They lost their focus on the gospel, on Christ. And as a result, they lost their focus on everything around them. And so this, this just harkens back to what Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God and then love others. And if you get that first part wrong, you'll get the second part wrong as well. So who were these women? What was going on? Well, the first thing we learn is, and Cass points this out very helpfully in, in her study guide, is that these women were Christians. Their names were written in the book of life. They were saved. They were converted. But not only that, these women, they were not on the fringe. These were not the women who get to church late and then sit on the back row kind of Christians. These are the women who were key players in the spread of the gospel. They labored alongside of Paul, which probably means they risked their safety and risked their lives for the gospel. So these women, I mean, these are the, you know, elite Christians, so to speak, the women that everyone else would look up to. And that's probably why this conflict between them has become such a problem for the church, is because they were leaders, they were influential, and so their sin had effects for the entire church. Now, what we do know, we don't know a lot about what this issue is, they don't Paul never really specifies. Um, you'll read a lot of um, commentaries, if you ever read about this, that go into these long explanations about what it probably was and what their sin was. Um, but they're basically just kind of making stuff up. Because um, we don't know. It's, it's pretty vague. Uh, and I, I think that 
it's vague on purpose. There's a reason that, that Paul does not specify the issue, and that's because the issue is not the issue, so to speak. The real problem is the state of their heart. They had let pride or emotion, some sort of sin, creep in in such a way that this probably small thing became a big thing. And so Paul wants to redirect their focus onto what is pure, what is true, what is lovely, what is commendable, um, instead of um, letting them succumb to their emotions and succumb to their pride. Before we move on, though, to Paul's um, solution to what he's going to offer as a response, sort of a prescription for um, dealing with division and dealing with um, this pride, I wanted to take a little bit of time to camp out on these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Um, same gender conflict is not unique to women. Uh, you see Peter and Paul butt heads actually a lot throughout Scripture, so it's not as if don't ever let anyone make you think that just because you're women that we are somehow uniquely competitive or prideful because it's not true. However, I would say that we are unique in our competitiveness in, this, in the ways that we um, have rivalry is probably different in ways than it is between male rivalry. And so what I wanted to do this morning is, is sort of dissect what may have been going on between these two women, um, even if it's not that wasn't the exact issue for them. I, th I still think that as women, there's something specific that we can learn from this situation and take away from it. Um, first and foremost, the two most obvious things is that uh, female conflict is not limited to the immature. Um, just because you are a leader, just because you're been, you've been walking for years does not mean that the only women who are going to be catty are the, the teeny boppers. Um, anyone is susceptible to it. But more importantly than that is we cannot deceive ourselves into thinking that um, our, our sin and our competition is limited to our friend group. Um, just because you go to your, your inner circle and you talk about such and such person or something about the church that you don't like, um, that sin, it travels. Uh, bad news travels fast in the church, and that's why Paul heard about this all the way in Rome in prison. So we have to be very, very discerning about what we say and how we say it because it affects the church. You have a lot more power to build up or tear down the church than you think. So that's why this story is really important for us. But um, what I want to examine even further is what causes female conflict what causes this competitiveness between us? I, uh, I did some research and found some statistics about female competitiveness. Um, the numbers were that 90% of women of different social strata claim that envy and jealousy toward other women colors their lives. 80% of women say they have encountered jealousy in other females since they were in grade school. 90% of women in diverse jobs report that competition in the workplace is primarily between women rather than between men, women and men. And more than 65% said they were jealous of their best friend or sister. What is shocking to me about these numbers is how low they are. <laughs> 
the um, 80% of women who say they have encountered jealousy in other females, I'm kind of like, where were the other 20%? Like, living under a rock? <laughs> I, I mean, I think we all, if, if you have not encountered jealousy in yourself, you have seen other women be jealous. Um, these numbers are easily observable in our lives around us. If you think uh, to your younger days, either you or someone you know probably had a falling out over a guy. Um, you were both interested in the same guy, and he chose one. Um, then you get married, and, and the competition becomes a little more nuanced, a little more subtle, um, a little more internal. There's, there's uh, competition or jealousy over um, one another's marriages, and then that continues on with children. There's kind of a race to have children, and then to have the most children, and then to have the most successful children. And you have, you know, my student is an, my child is an honor student, bumper stickers, and um, and then the cycle continues when your children grow up, and then you sort of impose that pressure on your own children to get married and to have kids. You know, as I was reflecting on this, I, I noticed you never hear about the dad saying, when are you going to give us grandkids? I mean, I'm sure that there are dads that say that, but for the most part, as a general rule, it's the women that are putting the pressure on their kids. So there's this, this unending cycle of, of competition, comparing our lives. Uh, I also was thinking about how women dress to impress one another. And this was really brought to my attention because of a little uh, issue that I've had with my husband. We have been waging this epic battle over uh, tall leather boots that go over your skinny jeans. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They're like pretty trendy right now. So I wanted some jeans, some boots like this uh, about a year ago, but my then fiance, he he does not like the look at all. And he, he said, I just don't like it. I don't think it's attractive. And so I said, okay, that's fine. You know, if I wait a year, I probably won't want them anymore anyway. So why spend the money? Well, a year comes and goes, and I'm still, like, walking by the store, just kind of, you know, peering in wistfully at the tall boots. And I still really wanted them, and he still really hated them. But I thought, okay, a year has gone by, and I still want these things. I'm getting them. So we go to South Point one day, and we devoted an entire afternoon to this. We probably went to 10 different stores and tried on all these different boots, and he hated all of them. And there was, there was one particular pair that I tried on that I really, really liked, but he really, really hated. And I said, well, are you sure you don't like these? Because I think they're really cute. And he looks at him, and he says, well, I don't have to look at you all the time. <laughs> but anyway, so we didn't get those. <laughs> um, not exactly, you know, what you want to hear. I wasn't swooning. Um, but anyway, I ended up getting the pair that I think he hated the least. Um, but then, actually, I started surveying other husbands to see uh, how they felt, like if it was just my husband's thing. But I would say out of um, maybe a dozen Different men, I've asked, like, pretty much everyone I talk to, um, I've asked men, what do you think about the tall leather boots over the jeans? And I think one guy out of all the husbands I've talked to has said that they're attractive or that he likes them. All the other guys, they're not just lukewarm. They do not like it at all. 
So I don't know if this is a newsflash for y'all, but most men do not like the look of tall leather boots over skinny jeans. Maybe what your husband does, but a lot of them don't. And so what this shows me is that we are not wearing these for our husbands. We are not wearing these because men think it's attractive, because they don't. We are wearing these to look cute for other men, for other women. We are basically trying to look cute for other women, trying to impress other women with how trendy and cute we are. So all that to say, this competitiveness is ingrained in us. It plays out in all these different ways. And you also um, see it in the media. In fact, I would say the media exploits that competitiveness for entertainment's sake. Um, you know, 15 years ago, there was all the Hillary versus Monica um, more recently, we've had Angelina versus Jen. I even noticed, I was sitting in my, my vet office, and they had a People magazine, I think it was People, that said um, five years later, and it had a picture of Jennifer Aniston like five years after the divorce. And I'm thinking, okay, when are they going to let this go? So the media is exploiting that competitiveness. Um, you also have shows like The Bachelor, uh, where an entire episode is devoted towards the tell-all, where the women are just, like, bashing each other. Um, you have trading spouses, which in its essence is comparing women's mothering skills and sort of judging them. And we, as as the audience, are, are feeding into it ourselves. We're taking sides or opposing women that we don't even know. A couple days ago, I uh, was at a restaurant with, with Ike, and they had a TV in there, and they were showing Dancing with the Stars. And um, they showed the, the couple that was dancing at the time was uh, the guy that was The Bachelor. And I looked at it just with this look of disgust on my face, and I said, oh, I hate that guy. I hope he loses. And Ike looks at me and says, because he chose the wrong girl? And I said, yes. <laughs> and the ironic thing is we don't even watch The Bachelor. We watched the season finale because it was filmed where we honeymooned. And so it's not like I'd even invested a month or something into watching this and getting attached to these women. I watched one single episode, and in that hour of my life, I knew who The Bachelor should marry, and he did not choose her. So I'm going to forever hold a grudge against him. So all of that to say, um, competition, it, it it's, just saturates our culture, and we are certainly affected by it. And that's one of the reasons why I, I found this quote that I, th I think is really true. It's by a French author named uh, Francois de la Rochefoucauld. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but okay. Um, but what, what he says, I think, is, is, is very, um, very true and something that not many of us would be willing to admit. He says, in the misfortunes of our best friends, we always find something not altogether displeasing to us. You know, most of us would not openly rejoice when one of our friends fails. But I think there is a part of us, a small part of us, that feels slightly affirmed when we succeed and another does not. And as Christians, you know, we're, we might be a little more refined. We're not going to say it out loud. But it's there in our hearts, and it stifles intimacy. It stifles friendship. 
And given the right circumstances, it can explode like it did with these two women. Competition is lethal for unity in the church. It's what these women were struggling with, I believe, and it's why Paul is going to offer a series of steps for um, resisting, guarding against this competitive spirit. Uh, But before we move on to that, the, the final question I think we need to ask about women and competitiveness is where does it come from? Why are we this way? And I found a a really great quote from a, an author. Her name is Susan Shapiro Barash. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And she's not a Christian writer, but she's written a lot of books about female friendships. And she wrote this, this book that I love the title. It's called Tripping the Prom Queen, The Truth About Women and Rivalry. And she offers the following explanation that I, I thought was just so insightful. And so I'm going to read it for you guys now. Our definition of ourselves is bound up in our perception of other women. We see ourselves through comparisons with our mother, our sisters, our friends, and our colleagues. For a whole host of reasons, we have a hard time seeing ourselves as separate individuals with destinies of our own. Instead, we view our identities as, kind of, as a kind of zero-sum game. We succeed where our mothers fail. We gain what other women lose. We can't envision succeeding or failing on our own terms. We can only measure ourselves against other females. So first we envy the powerful women we see in the media, and then we symbolically triumph over them as they crash and burn. So in other words, competition ultimately stems from finding our identities in something other than Christ. We are measuring ourselves, our value, our success in life against one another or against some vague cultural construction of what the perfect woman, wife, and mother looks like. And this is all a direct result of the fall. Before the fall, we were free to simply enjoy our relationships with one another. But after the fall, we began using relationships to build ourselves up and find identity from them. And what is tragic, I would say, about this this culture of competitiveness is that women's ministry itself can unwittingly feed into it. Whenever you have language whenever you have books that are talking about such and such woman in the Bible that you should be like, you should be like the Proverbs 31 woman. You should embody all of those things. There's a subtle deception there. We are comparing ourselves to another woman instead of finding our identity in Christ. That is what Paul wants to redirect these women and the Philippian church back to. And so while I I don't know ultimately what the real issue was for these women, I suspect that because they're sinners, it was something along these lines. Maybe it started out with they had conflicting ideas over evangelism strategy or um, they had different ideas about how the church resources, resources should be dispensed 
But whatever it is, they let pride seep in. They let emotion take them captive instead of taking their emotion captive and making it obedient to Christ. So let's take a look now at Paul's solution. How does he redirect their minds to think on Christ? First, I love the fact that he is both gentle and affectionate. Um, As I mentioned before, these women were not teaching heresy. They were not false teachers. Um, We know this because of his tone. In the last chapter, we saw how Paul responds when someone is teaching false theology. He is, drops the hammer, drops it hard, isn't afraid to call them names. He doesn't do that here. He is affectionate. He focuses not on what they have done wrong, but he actually focuses on what they have done right. More specifically, the ways in which God has used them. I mean, what a great example for how we should deal with someone that we have conflict with, especially with your spouse. Focus on the good things that they do, not the bad things that they do. But his approach really models uh, the principles he's about to unfold. So in the verses following, what we get are, are four, I would say, steps to guarding your thought life and guarding your unity in the church. Um, as we read verse 4 and following, it's, it's easy to, I don't know if y'all have felt this way, but it's easy to read them as all sort of these disembodied exhortations, like rejoice, don't be anxious, you know, just kind of good things to remember. Um, but I think that Paul is actually being a little more systematic than that. I think he is offering them a prescription for unity, a prescription for guarding their thought life. And it's composed of four different things. I'm going to read them through real fast, and then I'm going to go through each one. But first, he tells them to rejoice. Second, he tells them to be gentle or reasonable. Third, he tells them, do not be anxious. And fourth, he tells them to pray. And as we're going to see, these four steps go back to the whole idea of taking your thoughts captive because each one of them requires an act of the will. Each one is a deliberate choice. Rather than get swept up in your emotions, you're going to take your thoughts captive and choose the truth of Christ. So the first one, rejoice always. I say it again, rejoice in verse 4. This semester, we've talked a lot about joy in suffering, and so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. Uh, But one thing I do want you to remember is that circumstances change but Christ does not. So if your joy is dependent upon your circumstances, you will always find a reason to complain. But if your joy is dependent upon Christ, you will always find a reason to rejoice. And if this is something that you struggle with, if if you're finding... If you're having trouble remembering the joy of your salvation, I encourage you to just spend some time reflecting on what the gospel is. And the, the timing right now is, couldn't really be better uh, because we are, we are leading up to Easter. We are in the midst of what my church called growing up Holy Week. Um, so we are reflecting right now on Christ's final days, and then on Sunday we will celebrate in his resurrection. But As I was 
thinking through this part of the message, um, I was reminded of uh, a friend of mine who recently said um, he's tired of people treating, let me see if I get this right, he said, I'm tired of people treating the resurrection like the medicine that you put in the donut to get your dog to eat it. Does that make sense? (laughs) Some of you are looking at me with this really confused face. Um, He says, I'm tired of people treating the resurrection like it's the medicine that you have to put in the donut to get your dog to eat it. Um, I think what he's saying is a lot of pastors treat the resurrection like we need to dress it up somehow. Um, We need to dress it up so that people will get excited about it and it will be catchy or flashy or trendy in some way. And, you know, as if it's the medicine, you know, that we have to put in the donut. Are you all getting the analogy? But I love it because the resurrection does not need dressing up. The resurrection is the best news of the gospel. We don't have to do anything to it. We just need to think on it. And it should cause us to rejoice. And that's why Paul can say this with complete authenticity. He's in prison, but he can still rejoice because he has the joy of his salvation. So I encourage you, in the, week, in the days leading up to Easter to just think on that and pray that God would restore to you the joy of your salvation. Rejoice. Rejoicing cultivates a heart of hope, but worry cultivates a heart of anxiety. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But the next uh, step that Paul gets is to, in verse 5, is he instructs us to be gentle or be reasonable. Let your gentleness or let your reasonableness be evident Um, Depending on the translation that you have, that word is translated different ways. Um, I think in this translation it was reasonableness, but it's also gentleness, um, moderation, forbearance, graciousness. And all of those words really get at this idea of responding in a way that is not normal to anxiety. Whenever your emotions are running high, Whenever you're angry or fearful or doubtful about something, it is very difficult to respond in gentleness. It is very difficult to respond with reasonableness. But gentleness prevents emotion from escalating. And it's also a very powerful witness because few people respond that way in the face of a difficult situation. And so Paul says, take your thoughts captive and remember, the Lord is near. This phrase, the Lord is near, I think you can interpret it in two ways. Uh, one is, is comforting. You can hear it as the Lord is near. God, is, God can help you. He can be your, your portion of patience or peace in a difficult situation. But you could also read it in a, kind of a big brother type of a way um, that God is watching you, so to speak. Um, God is holding you accountable just because you're freaking out does not give you license to respond however you want. God is near. He will hold you accountable. So you can read that the Lord is near as either a comforting word or a threat. Um, I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. Um, But the the idea here is to take captive your thoughts, make them obedient, and then respond in gentleness, respond with, with reasonableness. The next thing Paul instructs us to do is do not be anxious about anything. And I don't know about you, but the thing that always stands out to me about this is that there's no exception clause. 
There's no circumstance in which you are under so much stress that anxiety is permissible. There is no scenario in which anxiety is compatible with the Christian faith. I heard Mark Driscoll summarize it like this, and I thought this was really great. He says, anxiety is not a condition to be managed, but a sin to be repented of. Anxiety is not a condition to be managed, but a sin to be repented of. While it's not sinful to be afraid, it's not sinful to have doubts, what's sinful is to indulge them. What's sinful is to let them dwell when you know that the truth of Christ stands in direct opposition with those fears. Anxiety reveals a blatant decision to not trust in God. And that's why Paul makes such a strong statement, is he wants you to know that your response is your responsibility. And this teaching also goes hand in hand with with the one that came before it, um, to be gentle, be reasonable. Um, As I mentioned, anxiety often leads us to do a lot of godless things that we think we can then excuse away because we were stressed. But anxiety is not a blank check to do whatever you want. You are still accountable to God. The Lord is near. The final thing that that he exhorts the Philippian church to do is to pray. Before you, you run to anyone, your friends, your spouse, your pastor, first go to God and pray for that peace that transcends all understanding. That doesn't mean that suddenly everything is going to be better, but it does mean that you'll be in a place to do those other things, to not be anxious, to be gentle. You will not be tempted to sin out of your emotion. So pray for peace and then go deal with the problem. Paul closes by pointing to some specific things that the Philippian church can can think on and then put into practice what is true, what is pure, what is is commendable, what is is lovely. And so as I was was thinking through these, what does it look like to, to think on these things? Michelle mentioned these all describe Christ. So what does it mean to put them into practice after you have thought through Christ, after you know the truth of Christ? Well, meditate on what is, what is true and what is a lie. In your life, what are the lies that you are tempted to believe about yourself or about your spouse? What are the lies that are puffing you up and making you prideful? What are the lies that are causing you to compare yourself to other women and be competitive? And then what is the truth of Christ in response to them? What is pure? Are your motives pure? Is your thought life pure? What are your motives for um, the way that you dress? You know, there's more to um, dressing than just modesty. There's also, um, I would say, dressing in a way that can intimidate other women or make them feel bad about themselves if you put too much emphasis on the way that you look. What are your motives for how you treat your spouse? Are you... Um, being kind in a passive-aggressive kind of a way. Reflect on what is noble and commendable, not in the sight of others, 
but in the sight of God. Reflect on what is lovely, not to others, not to our culture, but to God. To close this morning, I want to point out that Paul never, never specifies either A, what the, what the conflict was, or B, how to resolve the specific conflict. He does not prescribe how to determine who is right and who is wrong in this situation because it's really beside the point. In fact, it's not even really about disagreeing. As long as we are fallen human beings, we're going to disagree with one another. But the measure of our faith is not whether we disagree, but how we disagree. How do we respond when we are disappointed? How do we respond when another woman one-ups us in a way that makes us feel insecure or jealous or competitive? Do we respond by complaining or do we rejoice in our salvation? Do we respond by acting rashly, slandering someone? Or do we respond with gentleness and reason? Do we get anxious or do we have peace? Do we run to our friends, run to our spouse, or do we talk to God? This is what sets us apart. And so at the root of how we treat one another is the state of your heart. Are you taking your emotions captive, taking your thoughts captive, or are they taking you captive? And because we are living in a culture where competition is so thoroughly ingrained in us as women, this is a fantastic opportunity for us to set ourselves apart to be women who are free of that competition with one another. By taking our thoughts captive and resting in our Christ-determined identities, we do not have to feel threatened by one another. We can be free to love unconditionally and extravagantly the way Adam and Eve were able to before the fall. So in in a world where we have movies like Mean Girls and TV shows like The Jersey Shore. Has anyone seen that? Good. (laughs) That just thrive on, feed on this this female competitiveness. This is our opportunity. Um, This is our prescription. This is what we need to do, what we need to think on so that we can be women who shine like stars in the sky in a dark and depraved generation. So think on Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the ways that it, that it edifies us and points us to truth when there is so much error in the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be disciplined with our thought lives, to know that Following you is not simply about what we do with our bodies, but what we do with our minds. That you require full and total surrender of us. So help us to be women that are surrendered to you both in body and in spirit so that we can stand out to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. And that they would take notice that something is different and want to know you as a result. 
We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So y'all can have, uh, I put discussion questions on each table, and so y'all can divide up into your groups and...